So, um, Jared and I, this summer, will celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary. Yes. And I have this, like, very, you know how you sometimes you have, I don't actually have a ton of, like, very distinct memories. I have a horrible memory. But I have this, like, very distinct memory of being a newlywed in a Sunday school class and hearing someone else share that they were celebrating their 15th wedding anniversary. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, they are old. (laughs) Um, And that is a really long time. So I know that some of you hear that we've been married 15 years and you think that's like a really long time. And then some of you, you hear that we've been married for 15 years and you think y'all are just spring chickens in the marriage category. You know, get to 30, get to 40, and then we'll talk. So it's interesting to me that something even like a number, a number, it matters your perspective about it. We have different perspectives about these numbers. And um, a story, I'm on, I'm on like a, since I think since we um, are celebrating our 15th wedding anniversary, I'm like kind of uh, sentimental. And uh, there was a story of perspective that I remember very clearly as well. Um, we, um, we were just newly married and I was at um, church and this sweet little friend had just gotten engaged and she was showing me her, her new beautiful engagement ring. And since she knew that we just gotten married, she asked to see mine. And so I showed her my wedding ring, and I didn't wear it today on purpose. And I remember feeling really self-conscious because my wedding ring was bigger than hers. And I thought, oh, my, maybe my wedding ring is too big. And um, then I left from this event, and I went home to where we were living in uptown Dallas in this little condo um, where my dad had a unit. So we were living there. And I got into the elevator, and there was this woman standing there, and she had the biggest diamond I had ever seen in my whole life. And I thought, oh, maybe my ring's not so big after all. Um, and it, this thing about perspective, things happen that change your perspective. And one of the main purposes of this book of Hebrews and this section is to help us to keep expanding our perspective about Jesus, to keep expanding our perspective about God. So this section has words like greater, more perfect, how much more, better. Those are all perspective words. So what I want for us today is to be like the Grinch in How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And then the true meaning of Christmas came through, and the Grinch found the strength of ten Grinches plus two. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father... These 18 verses have enough truths in them that if we really let our hearts and our minds take them in, our view of you would surely expand. Our hearts for you 
would grow. You give and you give and you give. And you want us to look to the heavens eagerly to cherish our salvation, to cherish our forgiveness, to be in sheer awe of our access to you. Christ is at your right hand for us right now. What hope and what joy that can give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So this is one of those passages where a theological ballet is kind of occurring. It, It really is so rich and so full, and you really could keep digging and digging and digging. And it's one of those passages that when you finish this Bible study and it's summertime and you're wondering, you know, it's been a few weeks since you opened your Bible, and you're like, hmm, where, what should I look at? Remember this one. Come back to this one. Because there are so many truths about Christ. There are so many truths about who we are in Christ in just these 18 verses. And it's one to come back to, to, to hone in on, to study more. A week doesn't do it justice. So remember it for your summertime to come back to. Because today I just want to focus in on just a few of the glorious truths about Christ that we are reminded of in this text. Uh, So number one, verse 14 says, Christ offered himself on our behalf. He chose to suffer to save us. Matthew Henry says, the depth of the mystery of the sacrifice of Christ, we cannot dive into. The height we cannot comprehend. We cannot search the greatness of it or the wisdom, the love, the grace that is in it. But in considering the sacrifice of Christ, faith finds life, food, and refreshment. He is our example and model offering himself and laying his life down for others. Okay, glorious truth number two. Christ has purified your conscience. If we stop and think about that, that is amazing. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Down to your deepest being, you are clean. This is the power that the blood of Jesus has. That image from Psalm 51, that we are washed whiter than snow. Last week's lesson showed that the sacrifices under the law were not enough to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But the blood of Jesus is. Jesus is the better sacrifice. The one that brings forgiveness of sins. The sacrifice that was once for all and puts away sin. The better sacrifice that was so great that it only had to be offered once. 
to bear the sins of many. Our consciences can only be purified because God himself died in our place. Our hands are dirty. We've lied. We've cheated. We've stolen. We've lusted. We've gossiped. And the list could go on and on. My conscience should be screaming that I can never, ever come before the holy living God. Of myself, if I was to enter into the holy of holies, I would have to back out. There's no way. I can't enter. I am unclean. But Christ, his blood, has covered me. The blood of the lamb is so effective that I can now enter before God. I am clean to my deepest parts. My conscience is clean. Now, even the way I view my sin is different. I have been forgiven. It's no longer a part of who I am. It's as far as the East is from the West. It has been removed from me. I am clean. My conscience can be clear in Christ. Who I am is in Christ. Number three, this one's actually probably the one that has struck me the most this week. Um, Christ made it where we can serve the living God. Before, in our guilt, we couldn't serve. All we brought ever were dirty rags. We could not serve him because we were unclean. But now, in Christ, in faith, we can genuinely serve God. Uh, think for a second of the British royal system. Uh, if the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, a.k.a. William and Kate, uh, were to come to your home, it would be this incredible honor and would even change your status. To get to serve them is an honor. To get to have the privilege of them letting you serve them is this honor. And it's an honor that the vast majority of the people in Britain will never get to have. How much more is it an honor that we're given to get to serve the living God. And I think this is what has struck me this week, is it is an honor that was not given lightly. Jesus had to give his life and his blood so that we could serve. I think I'd forgotten the cost of me getting to serve. The cost so that my works aren't dirty rags. The cost so that I 
can enter into serving the most deserving person in the world. To serve God genuinely, truly, is the greatest honor of our lives. And it cost Jesus dying to win us that honor. And it is the greatest opportunity, one that will bring about such fruits, one that will be rewarded so greatly that Jesus died so that we get to participate in the building of his kingdom, in the loving of people, the serving of others. These are amazing things that we get to do because of Christ. I get to serve the living God. He chose me. He chose you. He chose your home to come to. It really, if you stop and think about it, is amazing. The creator of the world wants your works of service. Number four, Christ makes the promises of God realities in our lives. Verse 15 says, therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. One of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 1.20, and it reads, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Lori Burberry shared a powerful devotional by Charles Spurgeon about the promises of God. And I want to read just a little bit of, of it to you because she, um, she shared it, and I just kept thinking about it. And thinking about it. Um, we glorify God when we plead his promises. Do you think that God will be any poorer for giving you the riches he has promised? Do you dream that he will be any less holy for giving holiness to you? Do you imagine he will be any less pure for washing you from your sins? When a Christian, Christian hastens to the throne of grace and cries, Lord, I have nothing to recommend me but this. You have said it. Then his desire shall be granted. Our heavenly banker delights to cash his own notes. Never let the promise rest. He loves to hear the loud outcries of needy souls. It is his delight to bestow favors. He is more ready to hear than you are to ask. The sun is not weary of shining nor the fountain of flowing. It is God's nature to keep his promises. Therefore, go at once to the throne with do as you have said. Which leads into the next point. Who's at the throne right now for us? Christ is in the presence of God on our behalf. Think back to Hebrews 7.25. Christ always lives to intercede for them. Barnes says he constantly presents the merits of his death as a reason why we should be saved. 
verse 27, when it talks about Jesus' second coming, says that when Christ appears a second time, it is not to deal with sin. That struck me as I was studying this passage, that sin has already been dealt with. It makes me think of Jesus on the cross and his very last words. It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Sin is defeated. And a day is coming where we will know it no more. Number six, Christ will appear a second time to save us. And we should be eagerly waiting. I prayed the very dangerous prayer of asking God to show me more of what that meant. And um, so last week, I had one of those days where you just cry. And you cry a lot. And it starts out that you kind of know what you're crying about. Um, I started out crying about one of my children. (laughs) But then it morphs. And you only kind of know what you're crying about, and you're crying about anything and everything, and um, and your body just feels so heavy, and your circumstances feel so exhausting, and life just felt really hard, and it just felt too hard, and I felt the need to escape it. And this verse, 28, ended up being a real comfort to me. Because that feeling that we get sometimes that we need to escape, that's a right feeling. That's true. We do need an escape. We still need to be saved. And this verse is a promise that Jesus is coming back to save us. So if things aren't okay in your world or when things aren't okay in your world, know that Christ sees that and that he's coming back to save you from that. I think sometimes he lets life rock our world and he lets us feel that really hard of sin and of life to make us the people that are eagerly waiting for him. We can get so caught up in the things of the world that sometimes he has to make us these people who are eagerly waiting for him. We live in this strange tension that Christ is enough, that we can be content in him today, while at the same time we're to long for heaven we're to want more of Christ, and we're to not be fooled that the world is as it should be. Our contentment is not in that life works, because it doesn't always. Our contentment is in that Christ has a purpose for each of these things. He has a purpose for my day of tears. And he really genuinely did use it to make me love him more and to remind me, to let me go low so that he can remind me that he's the one that lifts my head, that he can remind me that he's the one that would help me to get perspective, to remind me that 
he's got this, that he's already dealt with sin and that these days of hardship are numbered. John uh, Piper had a really interesting sermon on this verse 28 where he argues that eagerly waiting for him is a sign of salvation. He says, there is a phony faith that claims to believe in Christ, but is only a fire insurance policy. Phony faith believes only to escape hell. It has no real desire for Christ. And I have a gospel conversation that I'm wanting to have again with someone that I dearly love um, and that I feel like the days are short to have it. And I think that this is a really interesting verse that I'm considering talking about with them because there is this sense of you feel that you're saved, but do you have any desire for Christ? Do you have any desire to see your Savior? And so you can pray for that conversation. It's probably going to happen in the next few weeks. And I just pray, like, this is true, that a real part of salvation is that it leads to a desire for Christ. Although I will say, I know that I far from eagerly wait for Christ. I just don't all the time. And I, so I can, we're going down memory lane. I remember thinking before I get married, Christ, please don't come back before I get to get married and have sex. Like, I just want to get to have sex. Christ, don't come back. Um, And then I can remember thinking like, I want to get to experience being pregnant. I want to get to have children. And then now I find myself um, thinking like, okay, I need all of my kids to have expressed their faith clearly. I need them like all to like, and then you can come back. But then there's also this part of me that's like, I really want to see what they're going to be like as adults. So I have this tangled web of feelings that is so still connected to here and now. I don't wait eagerly perfectly. And yet I know that I'm in Christ and I know that I'm saved. And so it's one of those things that I've had to almost, I've had to take it to him him this week as a promise. Lord, you have said that I should wait eagerly for you. Make this true of me, whatever that means. And yet how am I also supposed to be a loving mother, a loving wife, a normal woman, who wants to experience certain things. So it's kind of this like, how do I genuinely love my children and want to make sure they're saved while also eagerly waiting for Christ and trusting that he's got that and that I don't have to worry about those things. Lord, I need, I need this promise to be true of me that I would be one who eagerly waits Uh, And I know that when he comes, all these complicated things will be so much easier. And I will want him to come and we will be so glad and his timing will be perfect. Acts 1-7 says, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times and they are not for you to know. Uh, But we can serve while we're waiting and we can grow in our love of our Savior, and we can 
know that there is so much more to love about God. We can want our perspective to grow about him each and every day. And these six truths just from this tiny passage are so profound that we could let our perspective about Jesus grow just based on these, much less the entire word of God. Every day of our life, we need him to help us to look up, to stop being so inward and to look up and see him for who he is. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Christ is greater and more perfect and better. I forget so easily and need you to show me over and over again. And that is your kindness that you do that. You continue to draw me. You continue to show us. Christ is always there interceding for us. It is too amazing to take in. You truly are too amazing to take in. Our thoughts of you are too small. Make them bigger, Lord. Make them Grand Canyon big and oceans big and stars big and whiter than snow big. And those aren't even big enough to capture you. You are God. You are I am. And we are yours. Thank you, Lord, that we are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.